Well, we've been looking at voices, and we have looked at the significance of the voice. We looked at the voice of one crying in the wilderness as we looked at John the Baptist. Uh, We looked at the voice of creation last week, and this week with the things going on in our world and just the fact that sometimes we just need to be reminded of good news, right? I want us to look at a voice that's mentioned only one time in Scripture, and that is the voice of the archangel, and and it's associated with the rapture of the church. And that account is given for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul talks about this. We're also going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to put a bookmarker there, so you know that we're going to be there as well. Uh, These are the two primary chapters that deal with the rapture of the church. And looking at this voice of the archangel. Now, the word rapture is not used in Scripture. The word means a season away or a snatching away. And that is exactly what is being taught in the passage that we're going to look at and examine this morning. This is the next event that God has revealed is to happen you do realize there are no signs that have to happen before the rapture of the church happens. It could happen today. Now you see pictured there a trumpet because that's also going to be part of the announcement of the rapture. So you're open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and if you are physically able, if you please stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. We're going to start at verse 13 and read down through the end of the chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13, Paul writes, But I would have you not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them, which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So as we look at the voice of the archangel, Three things I want us to see. First of all, we need to see the reason for the voice. The reason for the voice. What is the purpose of this voice of the archangel? Secondly, we'll look at the reaction to the voice. And then the last point will be the results. You and I need to understand the rapture of the church. That it is imminent. It could happen at any time. And I hope you are ready for when the trumpet sounds. Let us look to the Lord in prayer. Father, Thank you again for your love to us, your goodness. Lord, I pray as we examine this passage this morning again, we'd be reminded of the need of looking up for Christ could come at any time. And Lord, may we be prepared and ready for when Christ will come. And we'll thank you for it. Lord, if there's someone here today does not know Christ as Savior, I pray that today they would understand their need for Jesus Christ, that they would understand their need for salvation, that they would be saved today. So, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit have reign in our hearts, that you would be able to convict souls and teach us this morning and remove distractions. We could be focused on what you have for us 
and we'll thank you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Now, in understanding the rapture of the church, I think it's important we have a little bit of understanding of some Jewish customs and Jewish traditions. Understand, the Bible was not written in 21st century America. And so when we view the Bible, to understand, we need to understand a little bit about the culture in which it was written, right? And so when I was in college, we had a man come in. His name was Greg Hartman. He was a, um, a converted Jew. And he obviously, being a Jew, understood a lot of Jewish custom. And he spent a whole class period telling us of different Jewish customs, some of which I would like to share with you now. Now understand... Many of the marriages back then were prearranged marriages. Anybody wanting to go back to that system, let me know. I keep trying to tell my daughter maybe that we could do that, but she says, no, it's not a good idea, Dad. But anyhow, back then there used to be prearranged marriages. So the father of the bride and the father of the groom would agree upon the marriage, and then the bride would go back to her father's house, and the bridegroom would go back to his father's house. But they weren't just sitting around doing nothing. The bridegroom during this time was usually adding on to dad's house because he's going to have a bride soon and he needs a place for them. And instead of building a new house, they just kind of added on to the old house. So I guess their house has got pretty big after a while. But Jesus says in my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. It kind of ties in there, but we're going to. But anyhow, he would add on to it and he's building the house or building the addition on the house, the room or whatever it would be. And he would just continue to build and, and keep working on it until his father said it was complete. That's interesting because the Bible tells us no man knows when the Son of Man is going to return. No man knows when Jesus is going to return except for whom? The father. The father was the one that would say, okay, son, it's time to go get your bride. Now, the bride, on the other hand, she is sitting there and she is ready for her bridegroom to come and to call her. But during that time, she had to make sure that she had everything prepared because she didn't know when he was going to come back. And so you remember the story about the 10 virgins and, and, and some of them had oil and some of them didn't. Well, that was her bridesmaids, if you will. And some of them were ready for the when the bridegroom came and some of them weren't ready. So she is waiting for this anticipated time when the bride would, would come. Now, it usually was about a year's length of time. And when the father set, thought that the house was prepared or ready for the bride to come, he would tell his son, go get your bride. Now, at that time, there would be then trumpets blowing and then a messenger going ahead to tell the bride, the bridegroom cometh. In other words, that was all the warning she got from the time he got from his end of town to her end of town. The trumpet's blowing and the messenger sent ahead to say the bridegroom comes. Now, when you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, do you see some similarities there? There's going to be a shout from heaven. The, the angel is going to declare the bridegroom's coming. There's going to be trumpets blowing and... We're going to meet the bridegroom. Isn't that going to be exciting? So understanding that tradition helps you understand a little bit about what Paul is writing here and the understanding of the mindset that they would have had in understanding this entire um, scenario in which he is referring. You see, because Jesus paid for the church with his own blood. The church is the bride of Christ. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 32, which we turn to many times to talk about the husband-wife relationship. And it's a great passage to talk about that. But what is the primary purpose of that is actually showing the Christ and his church. And that the church is the bride of Christ, right? And it says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it through the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, now having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish, so ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And so you see the illustration there. Paul is saying in this, uh, that the church is the bride of Christ, and he gives some great principles for us to learn of the husband and wife relationship in that passage. In Revelation 21, verse 9, it says, And there came unto me of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of seven uh, last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. Well, who would that be? That would be, again, the church. You see, when we talk about the rapture, those being raptured are from the church age. Now, I'm not going to get into how all the different judgments at the end time are set up and all the different ones, but understand that the rapture is for the church age. So what is that church age? Well, that's the time from when the church started, which I believe the birthday of the church was the day of Pentecost, until the time when Jesus comes. Everyone who's put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ will be part of that group that is raptured out of here. As I said, it's only the Father who knows when Jesus will return. Mark 13, 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man, not the angels which are in heaven, neither the Son, but the Father. And Christ will return, the archangel will be the messenger, and the trumpets will sound. What a great moment that's going to be. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That's real fast. It's going to happen faster than that. We'll talk about that in a moment. In the Old Testament, we have a couple illustrations of this rapture. One is Enoch. Remember in Genesis 5:24 it says, "And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him." Enoch had such a close relationship with God as they were walking through life. Basically, God takes him, and that's what the writer of Genesis says: is God took him. Because how do you explain that he didn't die like everybody else did? God just took him. The other one, the other example we have in the Old Testament is Elijah in 2 Kings 2.11. And it came to pass as they went on and talked that, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So again, another one that did not die, he was caught up in a whirlwind and caught up to heaven, was Elijah. In the same way, those that are in Christ at the time of the rapture will not experience death, but will be changed. And we'll look more at that in just a moment. This rapture to which we refer is imminent. I want you to look again at verse 17. 
Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. We which are alive and remain. You can look at several other passages that show that the writers of the New Testament anticipated the rapture happening in their time. And every saint throughout the entire church age has thought that the rapture would happen in their time. Now here we are, almost 2,000 years later, and it still hasn't happened. But I anticipate it's going to happen soon, don't you? Now I don't know the date. By the way, I did look this up because I've heard it was actually existed, so I did look it up. There is a pamphlet written called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 1988. It's not in print anymore. And then, I, so I read about the guy who wrote it, and then he wrote why it was going to happen in 91, 93, 97, and like 98, he finally gave up because nobody was listening to him anymore. Okay. <laughs> you know who knows the date? The Father. Not anybody else. And anybody else who tells you they know the date are lying. But that doesn't change the fact that it's imminent or it could happen at any time. It could happen before we go to lunch today. We were eating Friday at a dinner for the Eastern Carolina Aviation Heritage Foundation. And the city manager says, I hope you don't mind, but, you know, I feel life is uncertain. I'm going to eat my dessert first. And I said, that is my whole philosophy. Eat dessert first. You don't know life is uncertain. What if the rapture were to happen and you didn't enjoy that last dessert? <laughs> I don't think we would care, but you know, it's a good excuse to eat dessert first. Amen. <laughs> All right. Philippians 3.20 says, for our conversation, that's not just our talk, but our whole manner of life is in heaven from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're looking for him to come back. 1 John 2.28, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. So, it could happen at any moment. You see, I am what they call a pre-tribulation rapturist. What does that mean? I believe that the rapture is going to happen before the tribulation. There are some that call themselves mid-tribulation and say the church has to invert their first half of it. There are post-tribulation where the church continues through the tribulation with no hope of escape of the tribulation. Then the rapture happens and then they come right back. And then there's the partial rapturist who say only those who want to go, go. And then there's the selective rapturist who say only those who are living for him go. And I'm glad scripture teaches that once you're born again, child of God, when the rapture happens, you're caught out of here. Aren't you? All right, so let's throw all those others aside, and I hope you stand where I believe the Word of God teaches, and that is the next event that God has prophesied is going to happen is the rapture of the church, period. And that should be a comfort to us. The reason why I bring that up is because that truly should be a comfort to us, and I'll cover this more later. But you know, our world has fallen apart. But the Bible tells us there's a great tribulation coming. And you know the beauty of it is, Christian, as bad as it gets now, it's going to be worse then, and we won't have to endure what's happening then because we're going to be gone. Isn't there comfort in that? And by the way, God never promised that when things get bad for the United States is when the rapture is going to happen. This nation could be completely gone, and God's still not obligated to have come back yet. Right? Okay, just so we're clear on that. 
Because as I said in the early morning service, it's amazing to me how many people somehow tie in the prosperity of the United States to God's timetable and say, well, that as the United States continues to head on this path, then that mean, must mean that Jesus Christ is coming back right now. Well, there is no guarantee of that in Scripture. Well, it got awfully quiet. There is good news, all right? So that's the reason for the voice. Let's look, secondly, at the reaction to the voice. I told you, hold your place here in uh, First, First Thessalonians. I said, put a marker in First Corinthians 15. And let's go back there for just a moment, and let's look at this passage here in First Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, and starting at verse 51, Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. It is instantaneous. The word moment has the idea of something indivisible. Instantaneously. It's going to be that quick and we're gone. Revelation 4, 1 and 2 tells us, And after this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. So it's instantaneous. The reaction is going to be instantaneous. Christian, when you and I hear the trumpet, we're going to be instantaneously gone. Isn't that wonderful to think about? It's not a long process, but it's a, a very instantaneous thing. And secondly, there's going to be a change. So let's look again here in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 53, Paul says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall put on incorruption, and this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul says there's going to be a change of form. This corruptible is going to put on incorruption. You see, when I was saved, I still had that old man. I still have, am in a body of flesh, and this body of flesh tends to wear out. It's getting older. Brother Rich, I picked on you the other day because I remembered you went into hospital for another surgery, but I couldn't remember what it was. I said, I can't keep up with all his replacement parts. I didn't mean it offensively, brother, but the truth is, is, you know, as we get older, things start to wear out and the doctor's got to put in the replacement parts, right? Because the original things start wearing out or do surgeries, try to put it back the way it's supposed to be because it doesn't do what it's supposed to do anymore. Take stuff out to stop working, you know? I mean, these, these bodies wear out, don't they? And now you young people don't understand this, but as you get older, they start to hurt. I used to wonder how the older people knew that the rain was coming before the rain got here. Well, it's because the joints start hurting. Now I figured it out, you know? <laughs> but we also have the old sinful nature that we carry around. When I got saved, yes, I was given a new nature, but that, unfortunately, that old sinful nature wasn't eradicated. But you know, when this mortal puts off, is put off, when this corruptible is put off, and the incorruptible is put on, and the immortal is put on, 
I no longer will have that sin nature and I will no longer have this corruptible body, but I'm going to have a glorified body like Jesus Christ had after his resurrection. And as I said before, you know, there he is in the upper room and the disciples have the doors locked and he just shows up. I can't wait to have that kind of body. That's going to be exciting, isn't it? An incorruptible body, one that's not going to wear out. Hallelujah. One that's going to have a full head of hair. Hallelujah. There's going to be a change. The Bible does make it clear we're still going to recognize each other. So how you all going to know me with a full head of hair and a thin body? I don't know, but it's going to happen, okay? You're going to say, I know who that is. Looks like he always did. No, kidding. Uh, But there's also going to be a change of location. So hold your place here in 1 Corinthians. Let's go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we're going to be flipping back and forth here a little bit. So you're going to want to hold on to these. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 says, Then we which are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. I'm glad that not only is there going to be a change of form, I'm going to put off this corruptible and put on incorruption. I'm going to put off this mortal and I'm going to put on immortal. That there's also going to be a change of location because now I'm not going to be dwelling here on this earth anymore. I'm going to be forever with the Lord in heaven. Hallelujah. That's pretty exciting, isn't it? So how is this all going to happen? Well, let's go back over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's go back to verse 13, and let's just go through this again and break this down a little bit. Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. Those are, that means they're dead. Okay? That ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. And we'll talk about what that hope means here in a little bit. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again... Even so them which are asleep in Jesus, are dead in Christ, will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them, or hinder, or go before them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Now, I heard a preacher explain one time, he says, so he says, I've been asked many times why the dead in Christ rise first. He says, so my answer always is they have six more feet to go than the rest of us. I don't think that's the right answer, but it's a good answer. I, I like it. I mean, the answer really is we don't know. God said so. Okay, now understand we're talking about a bodily resurrection that they're going to rise first, but it does say that those that are asleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Because understand that their soul and spirit is already in heaven, right? He's bringing them with them, and they're going to meet up with their body. And then you get the question, what if they were eaten by sharks? What if they got cremated? Or what if they did this? I don't know my God's big enough to make it happen. He said it's going to happen, so I don't worry about those little details, okay? You say, well, that's not a good enough answer. Well, I don't know. But the idea is, they are going to have a resurrected body as well, an incorruptible body, okay? And you and I are going to, uh, verse 17, we which are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds. So the dead rise first, the dead in Christ rise first, the saints which are alive are caught up. And then it says, to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So there's a great meeting in the air. What a day that is going to be. You know, we talk about when we get to heaven, we're going to meet our loved ones that have gone on before us. And yes, I believe there will be time for that. 
you know, we're going to get to sit down with Moses and say, what was it like leading the Israelites through the wilderness? And what was it like having the Red Sea parted before you? And we'll get to sit down and talk with Paul about all the wonderful things that God used him to do. But you know, I like what it says here in verse 17. It says, Then we which are alive and remain should be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, because... He's the one I want to see first. And I hope that's your desire too. To see Jesus Christ. That's going to be a wonderful day. So it's going to be instantaneous. There's going to be a change. It's done in a proper order. That is the reaction to the voice. Is that we are caught up out of here. We're changed and we will be with the Lord. Now, what happens in heaven during that time? Well, Christian, you and I are going to stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat of Christ, being rewarded for what we've done on this earth. There's going to be the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then when Christ comes back to set up his kingdom, we get to ride horses, amen, and come back with him and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. So we've seen the, the reasons for the voice. We've seen the reactions to the voice. Now let's look at the results. Part of the reason why Paul is writing this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is because they were wondering, wait a minute, there's some who've already believed in Christ and they're dead. What's happened to them, Paul? And Paul writes this to them as a means of encouragement. Let's go back to verse 13. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. I'm glad the word hope there is not the way we typically define hope today in 21st century America because when I say I hope so, means I think so or I wish so or it's kind of a wishful thought. But I am glad the word hope here in the original language does not mean that, but it has the idea of a calm assurance. It's not a wishing, it's an assurance of what will happen. So when we say we have this hope, I have a hope of heaven, it doesn't mean I have a wish show of heaven. It means I have an assurance of heaven. And so Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Now folks, I've been at many funerals, and I've officiated more funerals than I would care to. But let me tell you something. There's a huge difference between doing a funeral for one who is a believer and one who is lost. Because when I stand before this grieving family and friends, and I know the individual is in heaven, I can give them hope, that calm assurance, you will see them again. They are in a better place. They are comforted. Whatever they may have been suffering, they're suffering no longer. I can give them that comfort. I can give them that hope. I can give them that assurance. But when I have officiated funerals where I do not know if the individual received Christ or if I know that they did not receive Christ, I cannot stand before those people and lie to them. And it's a very hard service because nor do you want to sit there and tell them that they're in hell. Now, I might say something along the lines of, if they knew Christ as Savior, you can know Christ as Savior, you can be in heaven... But it's hard because you can't give them that same assurance as you can who one who is a believer. 
I am glad I have that hope. I'm glad that there are those that have passed before me that I know are in glory today. I have that hope, not a wish show, but assurance I'm going to see them again. Isn't that a great result of the knowing that the rapture is going to happen, knowing that Jesus Christ is coming back? Isn't that a great assurance? Knowing that, guess what? Those have gone on before, they're going to rise first. And then I'm going to get be caught up and meet them in the air. That's a great hope. Along with that hope, then, is comfort. Go down to verse 18 in 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes, Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, Take this knowledge and understanding of the rapture as comfort that those that have passed in Christ you will see again. But as I said earlier, I also find comfort in knowing that the rapture happens before the great tribulation means that I'm going to be spared the agony of God's wrath being poured out on this world during that tribulation period. Aren't you glad of that? Well, there's two more reasons, or results rather, of the rapture. And let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 to look at these two, please. Verse 54, So when this corruptible should put on incorruption, and this mortal should have put on immortality, then should be brought to pass the same which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it assures me the victory has been won. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He has the keys of death and hell. He is ascended into heaven and he is coming again. And I know that he is victorious. And Christian, I know that we can have the victory through Jesus Christ. I am glad Romans chapter 6 makes it very clear, Christian, you and I are no longer a slave to sin. Through Jesus Christ, you and I can have the victory over sin. Now, I know some that struggle with addictions and some struggle with habits and some that struggle with it, but let me tell you something. You can have the victory through Jesus Christ. He didn't leave us here to, to be defeated. He, he, we, he has made us overcomers. And I know some that struggle with certain sins and they continue to fall and continue to fall. Listen, if every one of us is honest, every one of us has had a habit or a sin that we have struggled with, but I hope that God has given you the victory and you can claim the victory day by day saying, it's not in my strength, but it's in Jesus Christ I have the victory. Because we are no longer, once we are a born again child of God, a slave to sin. It's no longer our default mode. We have that new man within us. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit in us that will empower us, enable us to have the victory over sin. So Christian, we should be able to live victorious every day. But also we can rest assured, Jesus, since he has the keys of death and hell, we will have the victory over death. You see, Christian... You and I no longer need to fear death. We live in a world that's scared to death of dying. Now, I understand COVID is real, but I think the world proved to us this world is scared of dying. 
be able to give up so much, live in fear, running around, just avoiding everybody, avoiding everything, avoiding living because they're scared of dying. You know what? I hope, Christian, you can say, I didn't have any fear of dying. Doesn't mean you weren't going to be cautious. But I certainly hope, Christian, you weren't living in fear. Because you and I, if we're born again child of God, have nothing to fear. Because when I die, I'm going to heaven. I will be with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So why should I fear? Because the worst somebody can do is kill me. As I said before, I hope it's painless and quick. I don't fear death, I just fear the pain associated with death. Because yes, while I did run with the Marines for two years, I never did adopt a philosophy that pain is just weakness leaving my body. But truthfully, what's the worst man can do to you? Okay, so they kill me. Then I get to be with Christ. So why fear? What's the worst a virus can do? Kill me. Again, they're not saying throw all caution to the wind, but if it did happen to get it, and I did, and thank God I didn't die from it, but had I, I'd be happier. I'd be in a great place. So why fear? Christian, you and I have victory in Christ over death. So we don't have to fear death. You see, through him we have the victory. And so Paul, as he's writing to the church at Corinth, it's interesting, as he writes to the church at Thessalonica, he says, use this message of the rapture as a message of comfort. He tells the church at Corinth, use this message of the rapture to understand the victory you already have. Because it, it applies to both. As I say, when we observe the communion, uh, observe the table, Lord's table, that we observe the Lord's death till he come. And so one of the things we need to be remembering as we come to the Lord's table is not just looking back at the sacrifice that Christ made for us, although that's extremely important, but we need to be looking forward to the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again, and it could be at any moment, and am I prepared? Am I living for him? And that is the last uh, result of the rapture that I want us to examine this morning, is that it motivates us in the work. Look at verse 58, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. After Paul goes through all this, he goes, therefore, now that's a conclusion word, and remember, You've heard this many times, I know, in preaching, but when there's a therefore, you need to stop and see what it's there for. Well, what's the therefore, therefore? This therefore is there to go back and remember not just the rapture, but he's talking about the whole resurrection in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, so since there is a resurrection, since we do know that there's a rapture of the church, since we know we're going to be caught out of here, since death has been defeated, since Jesus Christ already has the victory, therefore, in conclusion, Christian, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It motivates us not to waver in our faith, but to be steadfast, unmovable. When I was a boy, whether we were at my grandparents' or my, my dad's house, it seemed like there was always a pile of rocks there. And so my brother and I, and sometimes our cousins with us, thought it was a great idea to play king of the mountain. And so you stand on top of the rocks, and you're the king of the mountain, right? 
and people charging up trying to knock you off as king of the mountain and then you know you push them back down and they fall flat on their face and you laugh at them as they get cut up in the rocks because we're boys and that's what boys do but you were steadfast you dig in you wouldn't you didn't want to be knocked off the top anybody else play that okay good Young people, if you're not playing those kind of games, you need to learn to play those kind of games. And now I just gave real bad advice. You're welcome, mamas and daddies. <laughs> the point being this, is you tried to remain unmovable standing there. So it should be in our Christian life that we are unmovable. You see, the world keeps trying to sway us, saying, well, but everybody's doing it. You Christians think that fornication is still wrong? I mean, it's so normal now. Everybody does it. You know, why would you want to get married first before having sex? I mean, it's just normal to, you know, live together for a while and then, then, then decide whether you should get married or not. No, it's not normal. And Christian, instead of capitulating to the world, you and I need to stand firm on what God has said. So-called churches saying okay, since everybody's doing it, homosexuality all of a sudden is okay. I am glad the Word of God hasn't changed. And Christian, your and my stand does not change with the winds of the world, but your and I convictions need to be based on the Word of God. And here I stand, I can do no other, as Luther said. That's steadfast. That's unmovable. Let's stop trying to make the Bible fit into this world. Because if God said it, it stands. Period. And you see, I should have an unwavering commitment and an understanding, be steadfast, unmovable, understanding that someday, and it could be today, I'm going to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account of my life. So I want to imagine standing before him saying, well, Everybody else was doing it, and it seemed like an okay thing to do. And he says, no, this is what I said to do. Why didn't you follow me? Wouldn't it be better to hear? You took your stand. You stood for me. You stood for what was right. Well done. Let's be steadfast, unmovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, for your, though your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I said earlier, our desire should be to serve others. Right? We should serve others. But may I say, in serving others, it expends energy. You can get worn out. And here's the problem. While we know that we should be serving, not expecting anything in return, sometimes as human beings, we start to focus on, wow, it sure be nice to at least get a thank you. Let's remember something. Let's do our work, not for the sake of others, but for Christ. Now, let me say with that, when somebody does something nice for you, please stop and say thank you. It really helped encourage him. You like to be thanked. There's not a person in this room that doesn't like when somebody says thank you for something you've done. So why don't we do it for others? But as you're serving, even if nobody ever does say thank you, even if they criticize, even if they complain about what you're trying to do, if you're doing it for Christ, which you should be, do it anyhow and keep doing it because he will reward you for the faithfulness. And let me tell you something, 
His rewards are so much better than man's thank yous because man can thank you today and then stab you in the back tomorrow. But I'm glad when Jesus Christ rewards, it's a true reward, an incorruptible reward. So the fact that the voice of the archangel is going to sound soon should motivate you and I, Christian, to continue in the work of the Lord. Because soon, and I don't know when, the voice of the archangel is going to announce the rapture of the church. Jesus is going to return to snatch his bride away. And so that gives us hope or that calm assurance. It gives us comfort. It assures us of our victory. And it motivates us to remain faithful. Are we living in light of the soon return of Jesus Christ? If that archangel were to proclaim right now that the bridegroom is coming, are you ready? If that trumpet were sounding right now, are you ready? Because going back to, going back to the Jewish tradition, when the bridegroom would come and he would call the bride and her maids that were ready, but remember, those that weren't ready weren't allowed in. Why? Because they weren't ready. Now, that does not teach in the partial rapture what that shows us, Christian, and that actually applies to something else, but the, the point being this, if we're not ready at his return and we're going to stand before him in judgment, I don't want to be ashamed standing before him. I don't want to have to stand before him and say, Lord, I knew you were coming, but I hid your talents. Lord, I knew you were coming, but I wasted my time. Lord, I knew you were coming, but I didn't know it would be today, so I thought I had more time to take care of those things. No, let's live every day as though today could be the day that Jesus Christ returns. Let's bow for a word of prayer.